Two guys in a church, George and William, decided that they really wanted to become godly men. So they started meeting to pray and to encourage one another. They even set goals for themselves and for their their behavior. And they were going to be accountable to each other. George decided he wanted to break his nasty habit of using profanity. He decided he was going to put $5 in the offering for every time he swore during the week. Yikes. In order to stay accountable, he would tell William how many times he had failed. The first week cost George $100. Now George must have been doing okay financially because that didn't stop his swearing. In fact, while he improved somewhat over the next couple of weeks, he really wasn't having the success he wanted, and he was losing a lot of hard-earned money. After the fourth week, William told George he had decided that the deal needed to be changed for the coming week. But he wasn't going to tell George how it would change. He just said, trust me. It will cost you both less and more. When they met the following Sunday before worship, George admitted he had failed again. William put a hand on his shoulder and said, George, I told you this is going to cost you both less and more. It's called grace. William took out his checkbook and made out a check to the church, leaving the amount blank. He gave the check to George and said, Your sin still costs. But for you, it's free. Just fill in the numbers, and next week there will be more grace. William's grace towards George cost him $55 the first week. And on the second week, it cost him $20. There was no third week because George couldn't bear to see what his profanity was costing his friend. So he stopped swearing altogether. 
That's what grace does. It's a force that motivates us to change, and that's what Paul desires for the people of Crete. Change. We are continuing in this letter from the Apostle Paul to his younger co-worker named Titus. As you recall, Titus is on the island of Crete, continuing the work that he and Paul had started. But now Paul is gone and Titus is left behind on the island with his hands full of Cretans who had been corrupted with lies and with myths and with the legalism of men. And they were in desperate need of sound doctrine. Doctrine which leads to right thinking, but also doctrine that leads to right living. Last week, I read a passage where Paul described to Titus what sound doctrine looked like from a practical perspective. In the household, explaining that Christians need to live like they say they believe so that God's Word will not be dishonored by their conduct, and ultimately, so that the Gospel message will be compelling and cause people to come closer to take a look. That's the purpose. For Paul, the Gospel must be lived out lived out by Christians in practical ways, both in the home and in the public, if the Cretan culture is really going to change. And in these next few verses, Paul is going to tell us how and why. How and why. So if you have your Bible... Turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to finish this chapter. Titus chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 11. Is it up? Good. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us, 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Before we dig into this passage, I want to say a couple of things. In this letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul has written a lot about sound doctrine and how one's conduct is to be consistent with sound doctrine. But with all of that said, he knows this cannot be done apart from God's grace. This passage is about God's grace. And to understand grace, I need to share some key words that describe how God deals with mankind. Okay? There are three key words. Three key words I want to touch on. And the first one is justice. Justice. You know that word. In a nutshell, justice is God giving us exactly what we deserve. Okay? Justice is God giving us exactly what we deserve, and quite frankly, I do not want God's justice. Just saying. In my mind, no one in their right mind should ever want God to give them what they really deserve. That's justice. God giving us what we deserve. Then there's mercy. Mercy. And it's the opposite of justice. Justice is God giving us what we deserve, and mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. It's the opposite. Now, I'll be honest. I have no problem demanding that God give justice against someone else. Hold them accountable, Lord. Stick it to them. Right? But when it comes to me, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how we act. Justice and mercy. Last but not least, 
is grace. Again, mercy, listen to this, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Are you with me? God is not giving us what we deserve. Whereas grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. I need to say that again. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Hopefully that makes sense. Someone once said, grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Just because God wants to, for no reason on our part, He gives His unmerited and undeserved favor to us. He gives us what we do not deserve. That's grace. It's amazing grace. And it's the subject of this passage. Now, as a preview of this passage, Paul will describe grace, God's amazing grace, from three different vantage points. From the past, from the past, Paul reminds us of the grace which appeared leading to salvation. For the present, he describes grace as a force which motivates one to change. And for the future, Paul speaks of grace that brings hope as we look forward. So with that said, let's start with the past. Paul says in verse 11, and that's going to remain up there for the whole whole passage, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Paul says God's amazing grace appeared. And he is speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is grace personified. At just the right time, God's grace took on flesh. Entered into humanity He walked among us without sin and He gave His life for us. Although Jesus never used the word grace during His earthly ministry, if you want to see grace, you have to see Jesus. You have to. 
We're told in the Bible that God is not willing that any should perish. But people could not save themselves. Never could. So by God's grace, salvation was brought to them. Jesus, who is grace incarnate, made salvation available to all men, to all mankind who are willing to believe. Jesus came to save sinners. And to do that, He made the ultimate, once and for all, sacrifice on a cross to cover every sin of every person who believes. Jesus satisfied God's justice. Jesus satisfied God's justice. He experienced God's undiluted wrath. He took the penalty of sin that we deserved and by His grace, He offers salvation to everyone who believes. It's a free offer. An undeserved offer. An unmerited offer. But unfortunately, not everyone is willing to take it. Many choose to decline His offer. Many choose to reject Him. And for them, whether they realize it or not, without a Savior, they are left to deal with God's justice by themselves. From God's standard. Not from their standard, not from the world's standard, but from God's standard, they will get exactly what they deserve. They will get justice. They will get justice because they rejected God's grace. God would rather be their gracious and merciful and forgiving and loving Savior, but if not, He will be their righteous and holy judge. God's grace brings salvation. No grace from God, no salvation for us. Simple as that. Now in verse 12, Paul explains that this amazing grace is not only a saving grace, but it's also a changing grace. A life-transforming grace. Paul says that this grace, this grace is instructing us Talking about grace here. That grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
The grace that brought salvation is the grace we live by in this present age. Now, pastor, wait a minute. Hold on there. I thought we were saved by grace. And then once we were saved, we are to live according to the law. Is that what Paul said here? No. Because Paul knows that's an impossibility. None of us could ever live up to the perfection required by the law. Only Jesus could do that. None of us are declared righteous. None of us are made right by God by keeping the law. We are saved by grace and we also continue to live by grace. Well, pastor, those people who say they live by grace use that as a license to sin and to do whatever they please. They got their fire insurance, so to speak. They got their easy salvation, and now they have the freedom to live like the devil. Again, is that what Paul said? No! He says it's grace that teaches us to say no to the things of this world that other people don't say no to. It's grace that teaches us to live self-controlled lives. Lives focused on others instead of ourselves. Lives devoted to the Lord. Yes, grace brings freedom. I get that. Grace brings freedom. But in that freedom, the force of grace motivates us to love and to live for God. Trish and I used to have a dachshund named Gus. but he should have been called Dyson or Hoover or Eureka because he was a little vacuum cleaner on four legs and that dog would eat anything that wasn't nailed down. Gus is no longer with us, but I would like to think Gus had a good life for a dog. He had a house. He had a fenced-in backyard all to himself. He was fed a couple of times today, whether he needed it or not, to include treats after treats after treats. Gus had his way of staring at you to make you think he had not been fed in a year. Trisha gave in to it every time. 
Gus had play toys and chew toys, and he was treated just like one of the boys in the family. Gus was well-loved and cared for. And with all of these comforts at his disposal, you would think that Gus wanted to stay at home with us. But what did that dog do? Gus would regularly try to get outside the fence in our backyard, so much so that we had to put bricks between the slats of the fence so he wouldn't squeeze his fat little chubby body through it and try to escape. What was wrong with Gus? Even though Gus had a pretty good life, he was not free. And because he was not free, Gus wanted out. And unfortunately, away from the very people who loved him the most. Living under all the rules and the regulations of legalism, is like living inside a fence. There is no freedom. It's suffocating. It's demoralizing. It's defeating. And like Gus, we want out. Unfortunately, away from the one who really loves us. When I was a boy, I used to go to my grandparents' 400-acre farm in central Illinois every summer. They had a little rat terrier named Spike. And he had all the freedom to go anywhere he wanted on the farm. Anywhere he wanted. There were no fences and he that he had to be concerned with, and he could go anywhere he wanted. Anywhere he wanted. But where do you think Spike was regularly found? On the porch waiting for my grandfather. There weren't any fences. Spike was free to go anywhere he wanted, but he stayed on the porch waiting for my grandfather, waiting for him to come out to take him somewhere, anywhere. That's what grace does in our lives. It's the grace of God that knocks down the fences And the freedom that God gives provides us and causes us to fall in love with the Master. To want to be near Him. To want to serve Him. And to want to obey Him. 
That's what grace does. You see, according to Paul, for those who believe, grace is not a license to do as you please. God forbid. Instead, like a teacher with a child, grace instructs us and it motivates us like a powerful force to change. To move farther and farther away from sin and closer and closer to Jesus Christ. As we reflect back on the past and appreciate the salvation that Jesus has graciously given to us, our only reasonable response in this present age is to change and to live for Him. It's only reasonable. We are saved by grace, and we live by grace. That's what Paul is telling Titus, and it's the only way the Cretan culture is going to change. Without grace, there is no salvation. Without grace, there is no motivation to change. And without grace, there is no future hope. Let's continue with this long sentence, beginning with verse 13, where Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus Christ who graciously sacrificed Himself for us, who became our substitute, who paid the full penalty for every sin we have ever done and will ever do, is the same Jesus who is appearing again. Paul says that Jesus is our, our great God and Savior. He's one in the same and with great anticipation, we are to be looking for Him. Paul does not ask us to look for the tribulation period. He does not to tell us to look for the Antichrist or persecution or wrath or judgment to come, but for the appearing of our Lord. That's our blessed hope. And how in the world could we ever look forward to His appearing outside of grace. Jesus will be appearing in glory and in mighty power and in righteousness and in holiness and in stark contrast to Him. Without amazing grace, we would all be hiding under a rock in shame and in terror because of our sin against Him. But in His amazing grace, 
Jesus calls us his very own. He calls us his very own. We belong to him as prized and valued possessions. We are treasured by Jesus. And we know this because in his grace, he bought and paid for us with his very own blood. God's grace saves us. God's grace is a force that changes us. But not only that, it is grace that enables us to look to the future in hope. Only grace can do that. Now in the last verse, verse 15, Paul says to Titus, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. Paul explains to Titus that he has the authority given to him by the Word of God to preach the truth so people will respond to it. And he has the authority to hold people accountable to it. Then Paul says to Titus, let no one disregard you. Now why would Paul say that to Titus? Here's why. The religious folk. The religious folk who felt they still had to earn God's favor would reject this teaching of amazing grace. Suggesting that under grace, there are no standards. And people can do whatever they want. Without an understanding of grace, they would try to add legalistic laws and rules and requirements to grace, thereby nullifying grace. Grace would no longer be amazing. Paul tells Titus that the truth must be taught, whether it is popular or not. That's his priority. He's teaching grace. I want to close by sharing The words to a hymn, most of you know, called Amazing Grace. I want you to listen to the words as they relate to this teaching to Titus. Okay? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He's thinking about the past of me. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. 
was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught. Grace teaches. Grace instructs. So Paul just said to Titus, "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace did that. Not the law, grace. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did the that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's future. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we know, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. A Word that talks about Your grace. Father, we would not be here without Your grace. Without Your grace, there is no salvation. Without Your grace, there is no hope. Without Your grace, there is no change. I thank You that You love us. In spite of us, in spite of us, You are gracious to us. You have given Your favor to us, even though we did not deserve it. We deserve justice. And I thank you that Jesus took our justice on his cross. He paid it all. Thank you for your grace. Father, I pray even now You would move in our hearts. Draw us unto Yourself. Move us farther and farther away from sin and closer and closer to Jesus. May He be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. I was telling the Sunday school class a little earlier 
we were talking about the truth. We were talking about God's grace. And there was a time in my life when I did not understand God's grace. I saw God as this this deity. who wanted to make sure I had better cross my T's and dot my I's just right. And if I did not, that's how I saw him. That's how it got so bad. It got so bad. I remember sitting on the edge of a bed with a pistol in my mouth. That's what happened. In my mind, in my heart, I'm never going to please you. You're never going to be happy with me. I'll never be good enough. You'll never love me. Because again and again and over and over, I'm failing you. That's the truth. I did not understand God's grace in that in spite of me, in spite of me, He was crazy, madly in love with me. Far beyond I could ever comprehend or imagine. I did not understand God's grace. And I'm still a work in progress, I'll be honest with you. I'm still a work in progress. I know God loves us more than you'll ever know. More than you'll ever know. And you are righteous. For those who believe, you are righteous in Christ. That's kind of mind-boggling. You are righteous in Christ. That's how he sees you. And because I am righteous in Christ, that's my position in him, I just need to live like it. God loves me. He loves you. It's an unmerited, undeserved love. And the Bible says, I'm going to paraphrase here, God is not an Indian giver.
God is not an Indian giver. He doesn't take back what he's given. No. Because God loves us so much, we should be motivated to love him and to live for him. It is the only reasonable and natural response. Our love and our obedience is a response to his grace and love and forgiveness and mercy to us. I hope that makes sense. I beat myself up for years and years and years. Why can't I get this right? Why can't I do it this way? Over and over, failure after failure after failure. That's all I saw. But when I receive when I received God's grace, when I understood God's grace, it changed everything. And what happened was, it wasn't that I have to do this, I want to do this. It changed my have to into a want to, and it changed everything. That's what grace does. It changes your have to into a want to. And that changes everything. Maybe you are here this morning and you struggled like I did. Man, I would love to, I would love to chat with you. Been there, done that. It's not fun. It's a no-win situation. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not experienced God's saving grace. I would love to introduce you to Him. He loves you more than you'll ever know. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. However God moves you, however He leads you, I just ask you to respond. Not because you have to but because you want to. That's what grace does. Larry? Stand, please.